So let's talk about science. Time for a test tube Thursday. Dan Riskin is here. Good morning. Good morning. So tell me about this de-extinction plan in Mauritius. And I guess that's just another expression for something I heard about in the Grand Canyon a while ago, which they call rewilding. It's reintroducing uh, some sort of critter that became extinct, and it completely changes the entire ecosphere. Yeah, exactly. So, the, well, if you want to split hairs, there's a little difference between the idea of rewilding and de-extinction. Rewilding is the idea of bringing modern animals that serve the same ecological roles as animals that used to be here. So, rewilding is like, we don't have mammoths in North America, but we used to, so let's release elephants in North America, and they can kind of do the mammoth thing. That's the rewilding <laughs> idea, and that, that I think, we can get into that, but I think that was mostly to get people talking about what it means to restore something to its original prime, because you can restore it to what it was like when Europeans arrived, or you can restore it to what it was like before humans arrived, or you can restore it to what it was like before, you know, you can keep going back and, and setting it arbitrarily. But this de-extinction stuff is the big topic of conversation right now. And Mauritius was home to the dodo bird. And the dodo bird went extinct in 1681. It was a giant pigeon. Uh, it stood about a foot tall, uh, and it was a cousin of pigeons. It didn't look much like a pigeon. It had a funny beak, and um, it was sort of famous for being dumb because, uh, well, it was, it was too <laughs> it was, nice. It's a dodo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but it would walk up to people and you could bang it on the head and eat it. I mean, it was just, it, they just had no instinct about predators because there were no natural predators on Mauritius. So when people got there and their pets and their, their feral rats and all the other things people brought, they just wiped them out. And so they, they disappeared very quickly and we've missed them ever since because they're such funny little birds, big birds, I guess. So the idea is, can we bring these things back? And there's a technology where you take a, a chicken embryo and you, you genetically modify its sperm so or it's basically it's sperm producing organs so that instead of producing chicken sperm they produce the sperm of another kind of bird and so their idea is we're going to genetically modify some chickens to make dodo sperm and some other chickens to make dodo eggs and then we're going to mate those chickens and then when the chickens have lay their eggs they're going to make dodos and they're getting ahead of themselves because they're talking about where they're going to put these things in mauritius but right now it's all happening in labs in the u.s and they've yet to make a dodo so we'll see where this leads but there it's not without precedence um, there was a successful cloning of a black-footed ferret not too long ago. Uh, her name was Elizabeth Ann, and she was made in 2020 from frozen ferret tissue from a, an, a dead black-footed ferret. And so uh, that is a technology they used to bring, basically, to clone to life an animal that had been dead. Uh, and that is a technology that would have worked even if black-footed ferrets were totally extinct. And so we have a lot of the technologies in place to bring back dead animals. Um, should we do it? And if we do it, how do we do it effectively? Lots of big questions coming up, but it's interesting that, that they're trying to do this with a dodo because it's a bird and most of the conversation has been around mammals. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's a little different. Okay, well, at least it's not Jurassic Park. I don't think we can get in trouble yeah, what with could a dodo go wrong, bird. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the dodos attack everybody. I, if a dodo can open a doorknob, I am I, I'm selling all my stock. That's, that's <laughs> They would be fabulous to find out. Uh, there was an episode of The X-Files written by a famous a science fiction writer about somebody uploading themselves onto the internet and apparently uploading your mind to a computer is going to require three things yeah so this is something that a lot of sort of future uh future forward thinking people 
they see this as one of the endpoints of all this technology that we're going to make a computer that's as complex as a human brain. We're nowhere close to that yet. But if we did, maybe you could upload your your consciousness to this computer and then your consciousness could go on living as long as you wanted, uh, potentially as long as that computer can last or could transfer to as long as the technology is around, <laughs> you could just go on living. Um, and this is a, basically a, a philosopher has written some a really interesting piece about what that re- what we're really saying when we say that uh, it sounds like kind of a, a neat thing to, to start thinking about. But when you really go down that rabbit hole, you realize there are some big assumptions that go into that one is that if a computer can do the complex things that a brain does, you could actually create consciousness with it. That's a big question about whether there's something in there that's having an experience. We believe that our experience of consciousness is just the result of the connections and the firing that happens among our billions of neurons. So if you had firing happening among billions of e-neurons, wouldn't it be the same? That's one big question. But then the other really fun question is, like, let's say John Moore decides he's going to do this, right? So, I, okay, John Moore is going to upload his consciousness to the brain. And let's assume that there's a way to do it. So we recreate your consciousness in a computer and all your experiences up to a moment are uploaded so that now you did this thing on the computer then just sort of picks up where you left off. Are there two of you now? Like now that you've uploaded, are there two John Moores? There's a biological one and a computer. Can there be two John Moores at the same time? Or have you just cloned John Moore? Do you have to kill the biological John Moore in order for the other one to take over as the, the consciousness? Or is that like, what do you do with that? How does that all work? And so that's a big question that I think people need to think about. But fortunately, the technology is still at least decades away on this one. So we don't have to worry about it right now. Okay. When you talk about uploading yourself onto a computer, I just keep thinking about the time that the computer seizes and I have to call IT to have my consciousness (laughs) rebooted. All you can see is blue because you're in the blue screen of death. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, hey, it's never a test tube Thursday without a good bat story. What's going on? Yeah, there's a paper out uh, where some climate modelers in the States have looked at the historic uh, occurrences of vampire bats in Central and South America and trying to link whether climate change is going to push those vampire bats into the U.S. Now, right now, vampire bats don't occur in the U.S., They, although there is one record of one from under a bridge in Texas from like the 1970s, but that's just kind of like a random weird record. Um, right now, vampire bats occur in Mexico. They get about 150 kilometers from the border of the U.S., but they're not quite in the U.S. yet. Um, And and so a lot of people are like, you know, they picture this moment where the vampire bats cross the border and all of a sudden all of the U.S. has vampire bats in all the, you know, every city and they're feeding on people and everybody's screaming. Uh, Vampire bats feed mostly on cattle, uh, but they're rainforest animals. This new paper suggests that they're moving with climate change and that as climate changes, they'll be pushed closer and closer and ultimately into the United States. I I really want to get a read on this from some other people who think about this stuff a lot because I didn't recognize the names on the paper and they seem to be coming from a sort of a, a, a disease outbreak sort of perspective as opposed to a vampire bat biology perspective. So I'm not sure exactly what this means in terms of the actual date that they might show up in the United States. But uh, it's a little bit alarmist. And as somebody that's always defending bats and trying to make people love them, uh, I wasn't thrilled when I read this one. But, uh, you know, I can't cheer for what I hope the science presents. If they've got good science that shows that the vampire bats are moving north, um, I guess I have to get on board. Yeah, I'm still coming 
come into terms with the murder hornets. So I've got enough to worry about. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that that is one where they've done the modeling and they've shown that murder hornets really can occur across the U.S. and Super. also Toronto is suitable habitat for those murder hornets, which Can't have wait. now invaded Vancouver Island, uh, the, the lower mainland. Uh, so I'm scared of that one. And that, I think, is a much better place to put your fear <laughs> than vampire bats because vampire it's way too cold here for vampire bats. We're definitely safe in Toronto. And we've got some new clues about what happened to the dinosaurs. Yeah, this is uh, some McGill work. There, there's this piece of the puzzle. Everybody knows an asteroid hit and it wiped out the dinosaurs, but there was also a lot of volcanic activity around that time that would have put a lot of sulfur in the atmosphere and could have made it very cold. And people have argued a little bit about whether maybe the 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 uh, the asteroid wasn't necessarily the only thing that was important at that time. This is new work that sort of tries to quantify how big a deal those uh, volcanic activities were leading up to the asteroid impact. And they show that there actually was significant emission of sulfur and other things into the atmosphere that would have made it cooler. So the, the environment could have been kind of perturbed, but ultimately it really was the asteroid that, that was the nail in the coffin. So we can still keep sort of using that shorthand that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs because that is still true i always love that artwork that shows this fiery <laughs> ball hurtling toward earth and there's always a t-rex looking over his shoulder like oh no <laughs> yeah yeah exactly well i like the far side where all the all the uh dinosaurs are smoking cigarettes and it says that's the real reason they went extinct it's, uh, <laughs> that, that was the one that i always think of thank you sir Thank you. That's our science expert, Dan Riskin. He joins us every Thursday at 6.50.